Misread is a book podcast where we review books, discuss topics, and provide social commentary on what's happening today. Here with us today, we have a special guest. She's a Canadian-born author. You may know her from her short story collection, The Cake is for the Party, or her newly released novel, Radiant Shimmering Light. She was a shortlisted nominee for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and longlisted for the Frank O'Connor Short Story Award in 2010. Her writing can be described as subtle, impactful, and engaging. She's a vegan Virgo that loves dark chocolate. Ladies and gents, I now introduce to you Sarah Selecki. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So nice to be here. It's awesome to have you on our podcast. And, you know, there's so much in your writing that we want to talk about. But first, uh, I know that you're born and raised here in Ontario, but you attended school in BC. What was it like living in the West and what made you come back to Toronto after so many years? I loved living on the West Coast, but I actually did my uh, schooling, I did my UBC master's class through the optional residency program. So I did live out West for uh, for some time, for several years, I think about five years or so. And then I came back to Toronto um, because it was just, t- it was time to come, it was time to come back to the city and... Uh, and then I signed up for my master's program, which was funnily enough in UBC, but I could do it online. So (laughs) I had the best of both worlds. Awesome. And it was while you were in BC is when you started your online creative writing school that you created in 2011. Um, I actually was working, I was on the move that year. So in 2011, I, I was, I think I started that fall as writer in residence in Whistler and that's when I really started building the online course and the online school and um, yeah I did spend some time on the west coast um, kind of going to residencies and Airbnbs and staying in people's houses who were nice (laughs) enough to put me up and um, and working all the while so it was um, it was a it was a really full year that year between 2011 and 2012 uh, putting that course together getting it all launched online and traveling a lot at the same time awesome and your online writing school it it currently houses over about ten thousand writers from all over the world so can you just tell us what inspired you to have that come about sure um well i never expected it to get this big i can tell you that <laughs> I, I really never did i um i started teaching long time ago like in the 2001 like in the early knots um and I was teaching just in my living room. I was just teaching around a table in my kitchen or my living room. And those classes became more and more popular. Uh, this was back, like, I had, you know, posters that I'd put up in the laundromat with little, like, <laughs> pieces of paper where it's like, pull here to get my phone number and sign up for a class. Oh, wow, very creative. And, uh and those classes became more and more popular, so I started running more and more of them. And when I moved back up to Toronto, having the city of Toronto um, 
I was living in Victoria, BC before then. Having the city of Toronto there really like they just kind of took off. I think just the population is more dense. People had more time, more flexibility. It was just sort of a different group of people who I could work with. But I still had all of my old students in BC. And then just through word of mouth, more and more people started asking, how can they come? Um, is there a way that I could do anything in their towns? And so I, I started to, at the same time, start started to feel like, hmm, I, sh I would love to reach more people, and hmm, I'm getting really tired, because I was teaching three or four classes a week, plus doing one-on-one -on -one manuscripts and edits, and I was uh, finding it really difficult to find time for my own writing, and teachers who, so I, I did actually talk to a couple of writers I knew who were also teaching uh, more conventional, traditional classes at uh, colleges and universities, and asked them how they did it, how did they balance their teaching with their writing, with their own writing. And more often than not, they would tell me, it was a disappointing answer. They would tell me, oh, well, I only, I only give 60% to my teaching because wow. I can't. And I thought, yeah, you know, I've been to a few classes that felt like that. I, I've, <laughs> I've felt that sometimes uh, from, not from those people, but, you know, I've felt that. I've felt the feeling of getting 60% instead of 100% of someone's attention yes. while teaching. Um, so I was like, that's not going to be, that's not going to cut it for me. So instead I was like, what if there was a way I could just create a hologram of myself <laughs> that people could listen to? And I was like, oh, that's, that's called a website. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, that's what drove me to do it. And then, um, from there, really, it's just the word of mouth has been incredible. Just people really love the classes and tell their friends about it. Nice. Awesome. Nice. What are some of your writing practices that some may find unconventional? <laughs> um, uh, well, one thing that I can say that underlies everything about my writing practices that feels a little radical when I say it out loud, although I'm getting more and more used to saying it out loud now, is that I believe it should be pleasurable. Mm. so I know so radical right like enjoy enjoy being a writer <laughs> this this Ernest Hemingway like narrative of cut your vein open like writing is easy just open a vein and bleed onto the page like that sort mm. of thing I'm just like we don't need that <laughs> I don't know what this is for I don't really buy it I think it probably was just like making it feel like it's really really hard and grueling and painful like puritanical work this creative process of storytelling and writing and, and description and image, like, what, is that just, was this just some way to keep it into some kind of exclusive club? Right. Was this, like, I don't know, you know, like, I just, so I started playing around with what if this could be pleasurable and not grueling, mm -hmm. and that underlies all my practices. So, um, but that's, like, kind of the most important one, and I do think it's unusual, um, because the first, the first time I said it out loud, to a writing friend of mine I said well this book that I'm writing this is when I started my novel it's like you know I want to have fun when mm -hmm. I'm writing it and she looked at me wide-eyed and she was like wow <laughs> but it must so, feel freeing wow. as well right oh my goodness it feels it feels freeing it makes it so much easier like it mm -hmm. makes it it makes the process so much easier it's still effort it's not effortless there's mm -hmm, still yeah. effort involved like there's effort involved in waking up early and making sure that you don't listen to all of those um, voices in your head that tell you that, you know, this isn't any good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, what are you doing? Who cares? Who's listening? Like, all that stuff. There is effort involved in not 
in not listening to it, but it's not the same of not the same grueling effort of believing those things and writing anyway. Yeah, you know, which which I have I've been there before. I think a lot of writers have. Your first book, The Cake is for the Party, was a finalist for the Scotiabank Yellow Prize and the Commonwealth Prize for Best First Book in Canada and the Caribbean. What was it like receiving such honors? <laughs> it was a super shock. I <laughs> did not expect it at all. Um, at all. And the news comes uh, most years right around my birthday. The first, the long list is released right in the middle of September. And I actually got, so I got the first call um on my birthday that said that said that I was long listed and I was like what How, like I just it's a good birthday it gift story. <laughs> it was a great birthday gift and it was the biggest surprise it was just the biggest surprise I um I hadn't written the book to be a prize winner you know I hadn't mm-hmm. written it to impress any panel of judges it wasn't even on my list of um things that I thought was possible for a book of short fiction by by someone my age like I just didn't think it was even there so um it was a shock and then and then it was just like it was a delight it was just a peek into what that could be I mean that it's so rare that that happens for a writer um I feel really I even all the time that it was happening and all the like fancy parties and all the stuff that happens when there's a Giller nomination. There's a lot of like fanciness that is around it. Um, yeah. I knew the whole time, like this is special. This is something you get to experience, like take notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, take notes about this. Really just forget be it. in that moment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the cake is for the party. Uh, I know this was your first book and it was a collection of 10 stories or it is a collection of 10 stories that all embody some form of, you know, life's great disappointments, whether it's infidelity, addiction, loss, mental illness, etc. I read that it took you about a decade to write The Cake is for the Party. What was the thought process behind the book? Um, Mostly I didn't. Most, let's see. It was a while ago. I was trying to write stories to get stories published in magazines um and I was trying to get stories published in journals and it wasn't until I'd written you know quite a few of them that I realized oh this is probably this is probably a collection I'm building so I didn't set out writing those stories thematically linking them at all um there wasn't a thought process around as you say as like life's disappointments I think later when I put the collection together, um, I did want to look at the themes that I that I could see, and I saw stuff emerging in my work, which I think, you know, writers do. It's it's said that writers write about the same themes over and over and over, and every book is kind of about the same thing. And um, I certainly see that happening for myself so far, <laughs> and but I see um, a, a, places where there's opportunity for intimacy lost. Um, mm. connection and disconnection uh, and and overall like people really trying to be good, trying to do it right um, and missing something in the in the process of their striving. but I didn't I didn't put any of that um, in consciously. This is just these these themes come out. there wasn't a thought process around the book okay. that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. It, it just sort of came together. there were, 
one or two stories that didn't make it into the book because I felt like they weren't, I don't know, they didn't kind of stand up. They didn't have the same weight that the others did. Mm -hmm. Um, Those nine stories felt a little bit more weighty. So that, I guess, was a little bit of a conscious thought process and some logistics in there, but not theme-wise. Those just, that's just kind of unrolled. So it was more organic. It was more organic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We see a crossover with the character Lilian that was featured in the story Go Menchura and the cake is for the party. She's now the protagonist in your novel Radiant Shimmering Light. Why did you choose her out of all your characters and why not just create an entirely new character altogether? Yeah, really great question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I could play around with some answers. Let's just see. Because it's a mystery to me, too. Um, one thing, I think, uh, well, one thing for sure is that there's a character in Gomentura in that short story named Evelyn. Yes. And she never shows up, right? And mm-hmm. Lillian's so obsessed with her, kind yeah. of. Like, it's really important for Lillian that this woman comes. And she never does. She never makes it. And Lillian's so disappointed and so gutted that, like, this important person that she put on this pedestal for whatever reason didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And in the initial drafts of that story, until the very final published draft, actually, that character's name was Eleven. And mm-hmm. um, later I thought, when I was putting the book together, I was like, well, that's kind of a red herring, having such an unusual name for this person that ne- that we don't learn anything about. I think maybe I should take that down because that it might mislead people to think there's something symbolic happening there. But there's not really. It was just the name that popped into my head. So I named her Evelyn because it kind of sounded like Eleven. Also, my niece was born that year, so I oh, nice. got to name her after my my niece, so that's kind of fun. But um, Eleven never left me. So for a long time, I thought I would be writing a novel about Eleven. Like, I had this story about this woman. I knew that she'd been missing for 20 years. I knew I knew a lot of... There was a lot about Eleven's character and her backstory, especially, that was, you know, ha- haunting me in the way characters do. Just, like, I couldn't stop thinking about her. I couldn't stop writing about her. So I thought that my novel would be a book called Eleven, and it would be about Eleven. And so somewhere in there, in the writing, Lillian just kept popping up. Hmm. And I guess somewhere they were linked in my mind. Their stories were linked. And then, of course, Radiant Shimmering Light, it's not Eleven's story at all. It's mostly Lillian's story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, so it turned out that, I, that Eleven is still a bit of a cipher to me. And that might be part of, that's part of her character is just being... A, like a cryptic, cryptic character who's lost to herself in some ways. I mean, she's she's shut down parts of herself that she's not willing to look at, and um, I think that's part of. I mean, that's part of what makes her so charismatic and mysterious, yeah. and also what makes her so difficult and kind of delicious to to go after in writing because I kept trying to find out more about her. Mm-hmm. But Lillian became my foil for that because Lillian, I suppose, was the person who first. I first met Eleven through Lillian in that story. So maybe that's why. I don't know. It's my best guess. <laughs> I think that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like she keeps inspiring you. Yeah. Nice. You're, you're inspired by your own characters, and that shows that you have this, you know, this level of, you know, you really get into your work, and you don't often see that, so it's nice, refreshing. But it's nice oh. also that she keeps... Yeah. Like, she's like a muse to you. It's your character that you created, but she feeds you new ideas and new characters. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the world, certainly when writing the novel, 
and sometimes in the stories as well. Like the world that I'm creating feels more real in many ways and much more like alive and real. Like I spend more time there, uh, daydreaming, dreaming through the <laughs> night and writing. So like it feels sometimes more real than real life, which is disjointing. Just to kind of like, you know, build off of the the character Lillian that um, Sarah's, we're, we're talking to her about. She's a 40-year-old painter and she paints pet portraits. And uh, she goes on this journey of finding herself through the world of social media um, with the help of her cousin, which she just spoke about, who would be 11. Um, but she's a big, you know, social media influencer and she has this this whole world online is it supposed to be ironic that Lillian embarks on this journey using a tool that we often, or this journey of finding herself through a tool that a lot of times is kind of seen as superficial? Mm. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know, I yes. I'll have two answers. My first answer is, as I've said, yes. <laughs> uh, second answer is, a little bit more involved, which is that I started, when I started this, this was five years ago, and I was still thinking of, like, oh, social media is so superficial, like, it's this thing that we choose to use to do certain things, like, but it was still five years ago, like, if you think about what was happening five years ago, so much has changed, like, it's just, it's, so as I was writing, I started it, Yes, with some irony, with some, like, okay, this is going to be great. She's going to try to connect through the thing that disconnects us. Connection, disconnection, we're connected, we're disconnected. Like, great, we can play with this. This is this is a place to go. And I was, I was like, poking fun at the medium. I was poking fun at social media slightly. And you can kind of still feel that. Like, I kept a lot of that in the first chapters. Right. And then as the years went on, the way we use social media began to shift. Right, and yeah. It wasn't, it's it's no longer a, a place, like, I don't feel like we can choose whether we use it or not in the same way we could five years ago. And not just for, you know, finding out about things or connecting with friends, it's more insidious than that. Like, I feel like our attention span has changed because of yes. it. I feel like what we read, how we communicate, um, just how our neurons flash and fire are different because um, because of our devices and, and how we are relying on texts to communicate instead of phone calls. Um, it, it's, it's changing our minds. It's kind of shaping our cultures, mm-hmm. and it's shaping our personal lives in ways. Well, I've, I noticed it myself. Like, I noticed just the way I was reading was different. And so I was as I was writing the scenes in the novel, it became less and less possible to use texts as a as like a as an a side option for communication because I started to feel false about it so I would look at like I would look at other novels and see like how are other people dealing with this this third space that we're engaged in? I mean we're on the screen more than we are we look at a screen more than we look at other people's faces That's very so true. um how how are other writers dealing with this like how do you how do we maintain the form of the novel when it is such a false form, like without making texts feel like a fake little like, oh, we'll just communicate by text here as though it's not something that's on our bodies twenty four hours a day. Like how and I couldn't find anybody else writing 
um, something that was quite so immersive the way I was experiencing Mm-hmm. the story through social media so then through the book and through the writing of the scenes I began to realize that um, the way Lillian thinks the way she processes information the way she understands herself in connection to other people and disconnected like separate and together with other people it's all part of how she is interfacing with um, her phone Right. And that and it became and it's very real because so is everybody else. And and so are all of us. Like everyone I know, except maybe my partner <laughs> who somehow is just not taken by it. He just doesn't he doesn't want, he just doesn't like the candy. But everybody everybody else I know is like, really it's a it's such a big part of their life and learning how to unplug is like a new skill. So it started as just like an ironic way to play with it. And then through the book, I realized, okay, it's not something, it's not an either or. This isn't something we can do without. I can't make fun of something as if I'm not implicated in it. I can't um, satirize something and feel that I'm separate from that and that the people I love and care about are also separate from that. We're all in this. So yeah. I'm going to be writing this. I'm not going to be writing this as ironic lit. This is actually different. Right, right. Because it's kind of part of our lives. It's kind of part it of is. our daily lives exactly. now. Exactly. It is. It's not really optional the way it mm-hmm. used to be. Exactly. In your interview with Prism International, you were asked the question: All forms of light appear, auras, fireflies, iridescent rhinestones. Every page shimmers. Why did you want to write about light? In which a part of your response was, while I didn't decide that I wanted to write about light, I did consciously decide that I wanted to write something that felt light. My subconscious mind may have taken that word another way. Maybe that's why the book has so much shimmer and glow. And our question to you about that was, why was it important to write a book that felt light? Was it because the cake is for the party took on more serious themes? Um. It was important to me to write a book that felt light um, because, like I said earlier, just that the narrative of writing being a really grueling task yes. that you set your nose to the wheel. Like I just was like, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't buy that anymore. It's not working for me. It makes me unhappy. This is my choice. This is the thing. This is like a gift that I get to write in this lifetime, and I don't want to make it. I don't want to. I don't want to make it heavy. I don't want to wear it like a heavy cross to bear. You know, I, I want to actually celebrate it. The fact that I get to be creative in this way is so important to me. And it's like, it's like the, it's one of the things that makes me happiest is when I'm writing and when I'm not writing, I'm actually not, I'm always a little bit off if I'm not working on something. I, I need, I need my writing. It's like, it's a good thing. So the topics, while I, while I wanted to write something light, um, it wasn't that I, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to avoid serious topics. I think I, a lot of the stuff that's in this cake is for the party is still present here. You know, the question of mental illness, the, the question of intimacy, loneliness, like deep, desperate loneliness, connection, um, betrayal, uh, fear, like all of those themes are still present right. in radiant shimmering light, but I didn't want it to be heavy going in the creation I feel like when you're creating something and you feel really heavy and despondent in the creation of it then you transfer that heaviness and despondence to your readers and that's again it's not to say that the content isn't about serious issues but the 
the connection that I feel when I'm writing something, when I'm making something, mm-hmm. um, there's a joy and a, a focused engagement that, that is at once very calm and also very present. And there's an aliveness to that, that yes, does feel right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I had, tried to write this novel several times from another position where I was like, Oh, just keep your seat in the chair just set the timer, get your word count done, get it done, get it done, get it done. Say no to all the nice things until you get your work done. And like, just again, going at it with that sort of puritanical vibe. And, um, not only was I not enjoying it, the work was heavy. Like the work did not feel really alive because I was grinding through, I was grinding through a lot of scenes like I had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was important for me to change that um, because I wanted to feel different and because I don't want my readers to read my book feeling like they have mm-hmm. to because it's going to be yeah. good for them. Like it's like whole wheat bread or something. <laughs> <you know? laughs> is your book even gluten Which free? Like, yeah, my book is like angel cake. Like angel cake. It's like, <laughs> um, but yeah, but really I think, I think often like, it's a it's a thing, Canlet. Like we talk about this in Canlet. Like it just has to be so good for you, you know. And Canadians are always looking for like the the darkness or the weirdness or the trouble. And then it's mm-hmm. like you're gonna read this, and it's gonna be so good for us. And it's like, mm-hmm. come on, <laughs> we don't need. That's the last thing we need. There's enough. There's enough hardship. You know, there's more than enough hardship. Why bring that into our literature right. entirely? Yeah. Yeah. Just to add on to that note, um, the novel. You know, it addresses female empowerment, business, lifestyle brands, viral movements that we've that we see in today's media. Do you feel as though those topics aren't often addressed in literature? No. Do you? Have you heard it? Like, <laughs> no, this is why your book is so no. awesome, because you don't often read about it. No. And there's this question. Like, I have to say, there's. I've been I've been on a book tour, so I've I've been out to Vancouver and to Victoria. I've been to some literary festivals, and I'm sitting on panels. Um, this is like canlit like audiences who are like enjoying their literature, often very academic, really intelligent, smart people. And I've written a book that's about the self help industry and a bunch of about a bunch of women who are like involved in multi level marketing schemes and like <laughs> trying to make money. And it's just so uncouth. It's like so touche. Like why are you? how can I write something that's literary while it's still, while it's about self-help? Like, is that even possible? Is that even, is that okay? Am I like, it makes audiences really uncomfortable, which, you know, is kind of my point. It's kind of my point. Like, let's look at it. Right. A lot of people would consider this novel as satire. Would you, (laughs) would you say that that was the intention when you, when you wrote it or is it just something that readers have labeled on their own? Mm. Readers have labeled that on their own. Um, the publishers, I discussed with my publishers both in Canada and the States using that word in the description because I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think satire is mean. I think satire is a way for us to feel superior about something that we see ourselves separate from by pointing a finger and laughing at it. Mm-hmm. And there is some social commentary involved in that, and it does feel really fun, and it feels you can feel clever, and it feels it feels good, you know, to stratify yourself that way from the thing you're pointing at. But I'm very much implicated in the world, yeah, of mm-hmm. the, of this world of social media, of being a woman, gathering with other women, um, of you know, trying to find a livelihood in this 
world of late capitalism, trying to um, do something that I love and make a living at it, um, trying to connect and make friendships in a digital world. Like, it's easy to laugh at all this stuff, but yeah. no, I don't want to laugh at it. So yeah. I think I think I've, that the readers who are labeling it as satire through and through from beginning to end, because there is some satir- it is playful. It is satirical. I'm laughing gently at ourselves. I'm not laughing at those people. I'm laughing at all of us here. And we can laugh because we're family <laughs> together, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of silly when I arrange my Instagram shot and just make sure that the scarf is just positioned just so before I take a picture, like, <laughs> yeah, that looks natural. Yeah. <laughs> so we can all laugh at that and that's okay. Um, but we're all part of it too. So that's, right. so I think that the people who, the readers who are reading it differently, I mean, that's another thing that's interesting about this book because I stay on the line of ambivalence and I'm not going to call something um, good or bad in this book. And even the protagonist and the antagonist aren't what you think. I mean, Eleven is set up as an antagonist, but I really want to play with what you think of as an antagonist and a protagonist in this world of the novel. Um, So we can sit in the nuance together a bit. And that's really uncomfortable. Like, you want a character to get her comeuppance. You want a character to be... You want to know that this person's good and this person's bad. And, oh, this is like... yeah. Oh, that's what's happening. Oh, okay, good. Because then you can then you can relax and go back to your day. But that's not, you know, this, I didn't write a crime novel that has an end. There's a place and a time for that, and it is great. But like, I didn't write detective fiction where there's like we're gonna find out who the murderer is at the end. That's not the kind of novel this is. Yeah. Um. So I'm inviting readers to join me to sit in that nuanced place where we can look at each other honestly and um, compassionately and look at the struggles that we have compassionately. But I don't think all readers are ready to join me there yet. Right. So I see that satire makes it an easier out. Mm -hmm. And there is that, there is that escape shoot in the reading. If you want to read it that way, you can, Mm -hmm. Um, but you miss, you miss out on a lot of the experience if you don't allow yourself to become implicated in the story, you know? Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of reviewers say that the the novel doesn't really make a particular statement in which you're kind of left to make one on your own. And I was just wondering, is that like a tactic that you use in your writing, kind of allowing your readers <laughs> to fill in any gaps or even going as far to say you're allowing them to insert their own thoughts and feelings to complete the full picture? Yeah. I mean, as a short story writer, that's part of, that's a bigger part of a short story form, especially contemporary short fiction like that's kind of a thing to to let the story to let the plot go um and give it and just like relay it off like you're you're passing the baton to your reader so the story's ended and the reader is like huh and then gets to chew on it for the rest of the day the rest of the year or for some in some stories a lifetime you can still chew on it and make your own meaning from it um but yes overall what I try to do is like in this book I really tried an extreme version of showing not telling Mm -hmm. so extremely like trying to imbue every action and description with uh, a feeling and a meaning in and of itself so that when you read it you get to draw your conclusions about what that what that means for you and Mm -hmm. I, I think that's happening I think 
you know, I tried it in a long form. I've never tried it in a long form before. And I also know that a novel, the form of a novel, needs a resolution. So I, I didn't want to end it the way I ended my short stories sometimes, which is, um, you know, dun dun dun, and then what happens? Like, yeah. there is a little, there is a little bit of that, but there is a resolution in this novel. Like, there, each, each one of the characters um, goes on a journey and lands somewhere um that is close to that is that answers the question that they started with in some way but for you the reader you you can have that feeling and you have that feeling of resolution but yes i still i still want you to um you know what not make up a statement of what happened so much as again come with me and feel what it feels like to sit in a nuanced place, hold a paradox. It's all about the both and in this book, like hold the paradox of, um, you believe in one thing and you don't believe in another thing that's happening at the same time. And there's no easy answer. That's like, yes, this is good. Yes, this is bad. The fact, the fact of this world of the novel and the fact of the world that we're in is that there's, there's a lot of both and, um, not this or that there's a lot of like yes there's you know there are yes there are problems in um in uh this recent god was just i'm taking a little bit of a tangent you have time for a little tangent (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's That's fine (laughs) okay so have you listened to this new cbc podcast called escaping nexium no not yet okay there's it's it's uh, really fascinating and really hard to hear at the same time. Nexium, it's this cult, really like similar to the Ascendancy, but not because the Ascendancy is run by um, a benevolent leader, and she's a woman, and she's got like a, a really good heart. <laughs> Her intentions are in the right place. Nexium is just like an out and out cult. It's really okay. scary. Mm-hmm. However, the people in this group, when they're when there's when they're speaking about the friendships and the relationships and what they've gained and what they've learned from, from the tactics that, that this cult has uh, plied them with, there's, they're like, mm, there's a lot of good in here. Like, I made really good friends here. Like, this was my life for seven years. And, and Nexium is, is um, you know, the FBI is investigating them right now. It's horrific. Some of the things that happen there are truly horrific. Mm-hmm. And this is what's so complicated about listening to it, it's like the the feeling that the that these women especially had within it was of real connection. Mm-hmm. So um, similar to that, I mean, ascendancy is not um, as malevolent um, a cult, right. but it does have some like there's prob- there's problems when you link um, like money to spiritual growth there's like there are problems Mm -hmm. like you can't you can't deny that and yet does it mean what does that mean does it mean do away with um everything does it mean do it better does it how do you do it better does it mean you do away with capitalism do away with like what does it mean what does it mean so um yeah so i i don't have the answer and i don't know if I don't know if that is a solvable problem in the way a reader would want it to be solvable in the way a satirical novel might, a fully satirical novel might just be like, here's, here's what's wrong with everything, but Mm -hmm. no invitation to sit in the feeling of the problem itself. Mm -hmm. Um, which I probably is, my hope I guess is that it's a first, it's a first step to understanding 
the situation we're in now and, and um, how we want to create going forward together, we probably have to learn how to sit in nuance a little bit more. Your book focuses heavily on influencers versus the influenced. What are some of the benefits and even drawbacks drawbacks of this notion um, for you or just in general, in your opinion? What do you think does it truly mean to be an influencer? That's a great question. Um, you know, I have, what does it mean to be an influencer? Hey, it's part of belonging. It's part of belonging to a group is mm-hmm. to um, influence each other. I mean, I'm saying this because um, I'm on, I have like a WhatsApp circle of friends and sometimes my sister-in-law will send me a song, you know, music. She just loves curating music and she'll send this, she'll send this song to me on WhatsApp and just say like, here's a song I thought of you. And this is happening outside of social media. This is happening privately, but I love it. Like I love it. And then I have a circle of friends and I send them things and they send me things. We send each other recommendations, but we influence each other. And it's part of like what I love about our friendship. Um, It's how I grow. It's how I know my, who I am, the boundaries of um, who's included and who's excluded and knowing special things about, you know, all the stuff. Like, <laughs> like Mac has this great mascara primer. Um, <laughs> it. It's awesome. Like, you need to know about it. If you don't know about it already, it's great. You put it underneath your mascara and it makes your mascara, like, totally go long. It's great. It's like false eyelashes without having to have false eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, like, there's something about that that um, I just want to, I just want to stand up for it because Mm -hmm. it brings us closer together. And I, and I know, uh, we can criticize it, but it's also, yeah, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, knowing about learning about our culture through, uh, the people who I selectively ask for advice from. And when those people selectively give me permission to give them advice on things like that's trust, that's community. Um, being influenced and being an influencer is like part of being in a group and belonging to one. So what I think, again, I think where it gets dangerous is when it's monetized and when it's like, um, when it's connected to a bigger machine that doesn't have our, that doesn't have our, um, best interests at heart when it has the profits for some larger corporation at heart or at heart I mean (laughs) does a larger corporation have a heart Um, (laughs) yeah just to say just like I think that with advertising when when it's getting connected to advertising and big big profits and big profits like linked Instagram Facebook Google Apple like when when the when those um, larger corporate forces Amazon are become our influencers then the question of belonging gets warped yes. I think yeah. yeah and I agree with you I think all of us we influence each other whether we're friends whether we're it's family members or like a whatsapp group chat and just when we share we influence each other and like you said I think I agree when you say it's when big dollars come into play and all of a sudden did you really like this product or are you just Mm -hmm. sharing it because you're being paid for it and that it gets a little Mm -hmm. murky there Mm -hmm. yeah it does it does get murky like you like your podcast this podcast you're influencing your listeners and it's like so nutritious (laughs) (laughs) so well it's so good and and yet you know i don't know if you know anybody who's um 
who's selling Arbon or doTERRA yeah. or like the beat, like, you know, there's so many of them now. Um, it gets a little, con- I'm, I get a little yeah. confused in there. Yeah. I get a little confused in there. Yeah. Well, I know we briefly spoke about the creative online um, writing program that you have uh, in which, or I guess even your, I would call it a mentorship program as well, um, mm-hmm. in which you have great guest lecturers such as Margaret Atwood. And mm-hmm. she's also made, you know, statements about your your novel Radiant Shimmering Light. And can you just tell us more about what it's like to have the support of one of literature's okay. biggest icons, like... I'm a woman's and gender major. Anyone who listens to the podcast knows that. So Margaret Atwood is like she her face should be on a flag, like waving outside of the U of T woman and genders like department. So, you know, this is to me, this is like this is fantastic. It's great. And I just want to know what it's like to have someone probably a relationship with uh, an icon like her. Um, yeah, uh. It's a li- sometimes it's a little surreal. Like when her tweet <laughs> came through about the book, I did feel like, like the the lines of my reality wavering a little bit. Like, <laughs> like this is the author of The Handmaid's Tale. This yes. is the author of Cat's Eye. Like this is Cat's Eye. Like cat, that's my. This is in the DNA <laughs> of Radiant Shimmering Light. Cat's Eye. Like um, these books and stories that I read by Atwood are partly why I'm writing. So. Um, so yeah, it's surreal, and and it's uh, it's also it's incredibly humbling and liberating. Both like um, I didn't know I went out. I took a big risk with this book, a personal risk. It felt like a personal risk. I don't. I didn't mean like anyone was threatening <laughs> <laughs> me or anything. There wasn't. There wasn't really a lot at stake. No one had. There wasn't any real stakes. But it was a personal risk to write the book. I didn't know. Um, writing a book that just had women characters in it, hardly any men at all, if anyone would pay attention. Um, I didn't know if, I mean, because I just, I just didn't know if what, if it would be, uh, how it would land. I didn't know how it would land. And when I read, I didn't, that was, that was a surprise to me. Like that was kind of a hidden, uh, a hidden barrier that when I saw that that was an internal barrier that I thought, why, wait a second, like that's what's keeping you from it. Like you're afraid to write this because there's no love interest. There's no male love interest. You're afraid mm-hmm. to write this book because all, because there's no more, there's not like a big masculine force. Mm-hmm. Um, who are you? <laughs> yeah. Like who, where is this coming from? Like, where did you yeah. internalize this? Like, what is this? When I, when I saw that it then became my motivator and it, and it became like the thing that's why, that's why I was like, okay, no, I am going to write it like this. But there was still this small voice in the back of my head that was like, are you sure what you're doing? And I would say things like, look, what would Margaret Atwood do? You bet she'd write it. She'd write it. She'd just write it. So having her in real life read the novel that alone, just like having her read it alone was surreal, but then having her uh, give a thumbs up to it and understand it and get it yeah. was, it was very, if it was like, okay, listen up, like me and everybody else, like listen to your intuition, do the thing you're afraid, write the forbidden thing, <laughs> the thing that you think, like do it, do it, do it. It kind of yeah. came full circle. Yep. 
That's beautiful what you said about um, when, you know, you had those voices in your head that were making you doubt your own creative path and you just pushed through and you used her as a motivator. And she didn't know about it, but you used her as a motivator (laughs) and the book was written and she acknowledged it. I think it's it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah, it's wild. We're curious because we it's a book podcast, so we talk about books all the time and we love to read. But we're always curious to know what are our own favorite authors read in their downtime. So what are you currently reading or who are some of your own favorite authors? Oh, that's a great question. I am pleased, <laughs> pleased to share with you. Um, one book that I'm reading and I'm obsessed with right now is Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. Do you know it? No, I no. haven't heard about it. Oh, you got to read it. Okay, well, <laughs> you just go get it right away. Okay, <laughs> we will. Get it. She's out of Detroit. It's nonfiction, um, and she's writing uh, about ways to organize that are ba- that's based on Octavia E. Butler's science fiction. So oh. it's like, it's awesome. It's awesome. You'll love it. Uh, another book that I'm reading right now and like almost to the end of it, and it's a really incredible story, is The Amateurs by Liz Harmer. It's very exciting. Um, new book out this year uh, takes place just in the very near future with a company called Pina which is or Pina although there's no there's no any there's it's just Pina I think the big pineapple on the cover of the book um and that that's that's suspiciously similar to Apple mm-hmm. oh. and Pina has made these ports that are it's like they're an extension of a personal phone and a personal device that promises a kind of uh travel adventure and people go into the ports and don't come back wow and so the question is like what is what is happening and are the ports ai or not and who's in charge and it's really mysterious and it all takes place in hamilton oh really yeah i think (laughs) hamilton hamilton and a little bit of um california so those are two those are two really those are two of the books i'm reading right now that um are really catching me those are awesome suggestions. <laughs> and I was looking for some nonfiction, so yeah. I think I'm going to pick that. Oh, yes, let me know. when. Like, Stay in touch. Let me know. Yes, I will. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the last thing that we want to know right before we let you go is, do you have any new projects in the works that we can look out for? What is Sarah Selecki up to now? Oh, uh, um, <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm writing something new. It's, it's baby 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 early days um but I don't want it to take as long as this novel did and I'm hoping that because now I know how what it takes and what the cadence of a novel is and all the false starts that I don't have to hopefully do again because um I understand now that writing a novel is different than writing a short story in many many ways I hope it won't take me as long I can't really say anything about it yet because I don't really have words for anything yet but um (laughs) but I will try to I know that I'm going to keep writing it and enjoying it. I want it to be full of pleasure. And um, and I also want to go to a, the next forbidden place, whatever that means. And that could I don't know what that means any more than you do. But <laughs> that's what I set out to do is like go on an adventure and go to the next uh, forbidden, the next forbidden realm for me. So we'll see what that is. Um, we'll definitely keep an eye out for it. Yes. <laughs> and have you come on and talk about that whenever that's done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for your time and your words and for sharing so much of your personal journey with us. Thank you, both of you. This has been great.